welcome to the long-awaited return of FigPi True Crime here on the FigPi Podcasting Network. Hi, everybody. Thanks for that. Thanks for coming back out, and we do appreciate it. Sorry for the long wait between episodes. You know, just like stuff kind of happens. And Were you know, either of us married by the time the last one came out? I don't think so. Let me double check. But, um, well, fun fact, we're both married now, so that's part of the problem. Yeah, <laughs> it's been so long. Um, no, actually, the last one we published was Lizzie Borden in in August. We were married then. Yeah, before that, it was uh, before now that I'm married was, too. So before uh, it was literally a year since we posted the episode before Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden took an axe. That was great to edit because that was an hour and a half worth of footage. I had to edit out, add it down to a forty yeah, to, a, good though, right? to a fifty minute podcast, but it was it was great. It was great. So tonight's a bit of a weird case that we're going to talk about because nobody died, or well, let me rephrase that. No confer- no confirmed deaths in this one. Nobody died that we're aware of. Well. Again, no confirmed deaths. Yeah. I have to keep specifying that. We're going to be talking about the June 1962 Alcatraz escape attempt. Now, the reason why I keep saying there are no confirmed deaths, and I'm prefacing it with this because I feel like I need to, nobody knows what happened to these convicts that attempted to escape. It is unconfirmed if they died, if they lived, if they're somewhere out in the world and had died later on. It, it is entirely unconfirmed. There is zero evidence. That's why we're going to talk about it, because it's kind of neat. But before we can talk about the actual escape attempt, we kind of need to understand who the people that we are going to be talking about are. So I don't know if Josh has any comments before I start jumping into the breaking down of the people. No, you can go go right ahead. Um, And also, as always, uh, we are reading this from the Wikipedia page about it. If there is something factually incorrect about this, I'm sorry, it's not my fault I am reading. It is Wikipedia's fault. It is Wikipedia's fault for not having uh, spell-checked information. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, the first of our our four escapees uh, is Frank Morris. Frank Lee Morris was born on September 1st, 1926, and was born in Washington, D.C. His parents abandoned him when he was 11, so he spent the rest of his life, his childhood in foster homes and orphan. He was convicted of his first criminal offense at 13, and by his late teens, he had been arrested for crimes ranging from narcotics possessions to armed robbery. He spent most of his early years in jail serving lunch to prisoners. Later, he was arrested for grand larceny in Miami Beach, car theft and armed robbery. Morris reportedly ranked in the top 2% of the general population intelligence, as measured by IQ testing 133. He served time in Florida and Georgia, then escaped from Louisiana State Penitentiary while serving 10 years for bank robbery. He was recaptured a year later while committing a burglary and sent to Alcatraz on January 20th, 1960, as inmate number AZ1441. So right off the bat, we got a, a naughty boy, right? Um, he doesn't. It doesn't seem like he was put in the best position to start off with, honestly. I mean, no, like, your parents ditch you when you're 11, and you're an orphan. Like, you're set up to fail at that point. Yeah. But I also, and I'm not trying to say, like, 
this guy ha- like should have taken every opportunity given to him. I mean, he should have, but that's not the point. The point is, is he was dealt the short straw, but I think he could have made the most of his opportunity. You know, yeah. yeah, like they they ditched him, but at the same time, he could have gone to school, gotten a degree. Like it says, he was a genius, basically. Yeah, I don't think he would have had a problem if he used that genius. If he, yeah. Like, it, it's just the truth. But obviously, even as a genius, he would know he can't commit this escape on his own. So that brings us to the next two, and I have to say two because uh, the next two we're going to talk about are brothers. They're John and Clarence Anglin. So John William... Uh, born May 2nd, uh, 1930, and Clarence, born uh, 11, uh, May 11th, 1931, were born into a family of 13 children in Donaldsonville, Georgia. Yeesh. Their, par- their parents, George Robert Anglin and Rachel Van Miller Anglin, were seasonal farmers. In the early 1940s, they moved to the, the family to Ruskin, Florida, 20 miles south of Tampa where the truck farms and tomato fields provided a more reliable source of income. Each June, they migrated north as far as Michigan to pick cherries. Clarence and John were reportedly inseparable as youngsters. They became skilled swimmers and amazed their siblings by swimming in frigid waters in Lake Michigan, as ice still floated on its surface. Clarence was first caught breaking into a service station when he was 14 years old. The brothers began robbing banks and other establishments as a team in the early 1950s usually targeting businesses that were closed to ensure that no one got injured. They claimed that they used a weapon only once during a bank heist, a toy gun. In 1958, John, Clarence, and Alfred Anglin robbed the Columbia Savings Bank building in Columbia, Alabama. All received 35-year sentences, which they served at Florida State Prison, Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, and then, and then Atlanta Penitentiary. After repeated attempts to escape from the Atlanta facility, John and Clarence were transferred to Alcatraz. John arrived on October 24th, 1960, as inmate AZ-1476, and Clarence on January 10th, 1961, as inmate AZ-1485. How often do you and your brother just also get shoved in that shit? I mean, other than having 11 siblings other than them, it definitely doesn't seem like they were drawn the short straw. They just did it because they fucking wanted to. Yeah. And there's no debate on that. Like, again, you can be like, well, there was 11 of them, so, like, they felt uh, misplaced. Sure. But that also means there are 11 other siblings who didn't choose to do that. They did also have one other brother that was mentioned that did commit a robbery with them. Yeah. But still, like, that's that's one. No excuse, yeah. Yeah, we, we don't create excuses for bad boys here. And the final uh, attemptee who tried to escape, this one I believe I know what happened with, so that's why I'm saying tried, uh, is Alan West. Alan West was born on March 25th, 1929, and died December 21st, 1978. He was born in New York City. West was arrested over 20 times throughout his lifetime. He was imprisoned for car theft in 1955 at Atlanta Penitentiary, then at Florida State Prison. After an escape attempt at the Florida facility, he was transferred to Alcatraz in 1957 at the age of 28 and became inmate AZ-1335. That is all they have to say about Alan West. 
What do you mean, like, you know what happened to him? Uh, we'll get into it. I I vaguely remember one of the inmates not even making it to the escape point. And I believe it was him. Okay. That's why I said, I think I know what happens to him. That's the reason they know when he died. Notice how the other ones, they didn't know when they died. Because they don't know if they're dead or alive. Yeah. But this motherfucker, they know he died. So that's, I'm using my context clues here. And I'm thinking that he didn't make it out. Yeah. So you're ready for the actual escape. Sure. And the actual escape is a little bit long, so I'm going to be pausing between paragraphs here so Josh and I can discuss the information we have ahead of us. Just making that known for everybody. <laughs> so, the four inmates all knew each other from previous inc incarcerations in Florida and Georgia. When they were assigned to Jason Cells in December 1961, they began formulating an escape plan under the leadership of Morris. Over the subsequent six months, they widened the ventilation ducts beneath their sinks using discarded saw blades found on the prison grounds, metal spoons from the mess hall, and an electric drill improvised from the motor of a vacuum cleaner. The men concealed their work with painted cardboard and, and masked the noise with Morrison's, accord Morris's, Morris's accordion fuck, <laughs> on top of the ambient din of the music hour. So right there, can we just talk about how smart they are to start? Yeah, definitely. Like, they were like, hey, we need to get out of here. How do we do it? I know. We're going to do this, but we're going to do it while masking our noise underneath the music. So uh, you play your recording in really loud. And you you know the guy was probably like, okay, I like my accordion. And he just would <laughs> sit there and fucking play that shit real loud. And everybody would be like, oh, wow, this guy really likes his fucking accordion. <laughs> Take your silence as you're ready to move on? Yep. <laughs> okay. Once the holes were wide enough to pass through, the men accused... The men accused... The men accessed the unguarded utility corridor directly behind their cell's tier and climbed to the vacant top of the cell block, where they set up a, candle, a clandestine workshop. Here, using over 50 raincoats, among other stolen and donated materials, they constructed life preservers. Based on a design Morris found in the 1962 of March issue of Popular Mechanics. With the article, Your Life Preserver, How Will It Behave If You Need It? Morris found other ideas in the magazine, resin to make a lamp shade in 1960, November, issue of Popular Mechanics, and signposts of water safety, about channel buoys indicating course and navigation hazards. In May 20. In the May 21st, 1962 issue of Sports Illustrated, they also assembled a 6 by 14 foot rubber raft, the seams carefully stitched by hand and sealed with liquid plastic available in the shops, and heat from the nearby steam pipes. Paddles were improvised from plywood and screws. Finally, they climbed the ventilation shaft to the roof and removed the rivets holding the large fan in place. So just right there, we again see how smart they are. If only that guy would have, like, you know, used his, like, smartness for not, like, not breaking out of jail. He could have been, like, a fucking Stephen Hawking or some shit. Like, yeah, he, the dude is way too smart for this. Yeah. Like, I don't. I don't understand. 
Like, I get it. He didn't want to be in jail anymore, but God, is that is that really all it took? I mean, at least, like, the brothers and, um, and the first guy you talked about seemed like they were seasoned prison escapees. Right, and that's part of it, is, like, the guy is such a seasoned prison escapee that he knows how to do this shit. Yeah. And we're going to see it right here, like how they concealed their absence. Cause I know people are probably thinking is like, well, how do they, how do they get out of their cells at night? Like guards usually patrol. Well, <laughs> we're about to get to that. Oh, here we go. So the men concealed their absence while working outside their cells. And after they escaped itself by sculpting dummy heads from a handmade paper mache, like mixture of soap, toothpaste and concrete dust and toilet paper. And giving them realistic appearances with paint from the maintenance shop and hair from the barbershop floor. With towels and clothing piled under the blankets in their bunks and the dummies' heads positioned on the pillows, they appeared to be sleeping. On the night of June 11, 1962, with all preparations in place, the men initiated their plan. West discovered that the cement he had used to reinforce the crumbling concrete around his vent had hardened, narrowing the opening and fixing the grill in place. By the time he managed to remove the grill and rewiden the hole, the others had left without him. He returned to his cell and went to sleep. From the service corridor, Morris and the Englands climbed the ventilation shaft to the roof. Guards heard a loud crash as they broke out of the shaft, and but nothing further was heard, and the source of the noise was not investigated. Hauling their gear with them, they descended 50 feet to the ground by sliding down a kitchen vent pipe, then climbed 12, two 12-foot barbed wire perimeter fences at the northeast shoreline near the power plant, a blind spot in the prison's network of searchlights and gun towers. They inflated their raft with a concertina stolen from another inmate and modified to serve as a bellows. At some time after 10 p.m., investigators estimated the ra- they boarded the raft, launched it, and departed toward their objective, Angel Island, two miles to the north. Okay. Like, they're, they're geniuses. <laughs> yeah, like... And, and like you, you read all that and you're almost like, I kind of want them to escape. Yeah. Like I kind of want them to have made it. The, the problem is, and we're going to get into this in the reason why people aren't sure if they made it is apparently the conditions that night in the ocean were not safe. Like they're very hazardous. Yeah, and who knows that just some amateur, uh, Who just knows that some amateur um, genius's raft would would stand up to the scrutiny of a hard of a hard night? Right, and so the thing was is uh, I guess scientists had tried and like reenacted this, like yeah. they got a night when like it was ide- identical conditions to the night that they tried to escape, and like they had tried to do a paddle boat like across to Angel Island and they just physically could not do it. But, like, you know, like they say, nothing's impossible. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not entirely impossible, especially if they've been training themselves for it. It's also not likely. Yeah, but it's also not likely. Like, how on a homemade raft. Not just a homemade raft. A homemade raft made out of fucking raincoats. Yeah, made out of raincoats and plastic. Yeah, it's again not likely, but not impossible. It's it's one of those weird situations where like 
you almost want them to have gotten away with it because of how unlikely it is. Like, it's it's rough. Yeah, it definitely seems that, it seems that way. So the next part that we're actually going to get into is we're going to get into the investigation. You know, what what the FBI and the cops and all tried to do to find these men that escaped. Because for all intents and purposes, they did escape. We just don't know where they ended up. Whether they lived or died. They got out. Yeah. They were the only ones to ever escape the rock. Yeah. And not the rock. Like Dwayne the Rock. Sorry, I feel like I have to sneeze. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So now the investigation. The escape was not discovered until the morning of June twelfth due to the successful dummy head ruse. Multiple military and law enforcement agencies conducted an extensive air, sea, and land search over the next 10 days. On June 14th, a Coast, a coast Guard cutter picked up a paddle floating about 200 yards off the southern shore of Angel Island. On the same day, and in the general location, workers on another boat found a wallet wrapped in plastic, complete with names, addresses, and photos of the England's friends and fit relatives. On June 21st, Shreds of raincoat material believed to be remnants of the raft were found on a beach not far from the Golden Gate Bridge. The following day, a prison boat picked up a deflated life jacket made from the same material 50 yards off Alcatraz Island. According to the final FBI report, no other physical evidence was found. FBI agents surmised early on, early on that the men had drowned. They cited the fact that the individual's personal effects were the only belongings they had, and the men would have drowned before leaving them behind. However, no human remains were ever found at the time. On July 17th, a month after the escape, the Norwegian ship SS Norfeld, Norfeld, Norge, Norfjell, man, fuck Norwegian names, just saying that now, mm. spotted a body floating in the ocean 18, uh, 15 nautical miles from the Golden Gate Bridge. The ship did not retrieve the body and did not report the sighting until October. San Francisco County coroner Henry Turkle cast doubt on the, uh, the speculation that it could have been one of the escapees, emphasizing the improbability that a body would still be floating on the surface of the ocean after more than a month. Instead, Turkle proposed that the corpse may have been that of Cecil Philip Herman, a 34-year-old unemployed baker who had jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge five days earlier. Several coroners from neighboring counties challenged Turkle's opinion, stating that it was possible for the remains to belong to one of the escapees. FBI investigators announced their official position while it was theoretically impo uh, theoretically possible for the men to have reached Eagle Island, the odds of them having survived the turbulent currents and frigid waters in the bay were negligible. According to the final FBI report, West said that they planned to steal clothes in a car upon reaching land, but no such thefts were reported in the immediate area. Huh. All I'm saying is West is, is a fucking snitch. He's the one that, that didn't make it. Yeah. Fucking snitches get stitches, bitch. He ratted them out. Like, he was like, oh yeah, we were gonna steal shit. Yeah. 
Isn't that interesting? Like, he, he even was like, yeah, yeah, no, we were going to steal things as soon as we landed, but, like, no thefts occurred. So if that's the case, then what do they do if they made it? And that's where it gets interesting. Because not only do we not know if they made it or not, but the guy who was with them and had all the planning with them knew what they were going to do if they made it, and nothing was done? Yeah, so it seems very unlikely that they actually made it. Unless they made it and they chose not to steal anything because they thought it would be too suspicious. Well, what... So, it was the three of them that escaped, right? So, obviously, like... Obviously, they knew there was a chance that... So, so let's just... Let's just, um... Let's just go on the assumption that they lived for a minute, right? So they knew the guy, one of the guys, had to stay behind and wasn't able to come with them, right? Like, they basically... There's, there's always a chance the guy that gets left behind is going to snitch. Right. So my thought is they chose not to do any thefts in that immediate area and, like, tried to rough it for a distance just to get away from the area where they'd be able to be linked to any crimes. Because yeah, if they didn't, like, they're just asking to be caught. Yeah, I feel like they. I feel like I feel like the most the most logical explanation is that they changed the plan to fit the fact that one of them had to stay behind. Yeah, they were like, he's gonna have to talk just to keep himself safe. Let's also do this. Yeah, let's, let's change this to save him because he's gonna have to tell him anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a super plausible option. It's just yeah. it's just such a weird scenario where like. They also could have not done that and had that, like, they could have not had that wherewithal to think about that. Maybe they just saw no crimes out that way. It's just strange that there's, like, zero evidence of them escaping, though. Yeah, it just has their stuff, you know? Yeah. So, next we have kind of the aftermath, and it talks about West's involvement in the aftermath a little bit. Yeah. So, West was the only conspirator to not to participate in the actual escape. He fully cooperated with the investigation and therefore was not charged for his role. West was transferred to McNeil Island, Washington after Alcatraz was deactivated in 1963, and later back to Atlanta Penitentiary. After serving his sentence, followed by two additional sentences in Georgia and Florida, he was released in 1967, only to be arrested again in Florida the following year on charges of grand larceny. At Florida State Prison, he was fatally stabbed. He fatally stabbed another inmate in October 1972 in what may have been a racist hate crime. He was serving multiple sentences, including a life imprisonment on the murder conviction, when he died of acute peritonitis in 1978. So, uh, yeah, he's he's dead. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he would probably eventually die either way. He did. On December 16th, 1962, Alcatraz inmate John Paul Scott made water wings from inflated rubber gloves and swam a distance of 2.7 nautical miles from Alcatraz to Fort Point at the southern end of the Golden Gate Bridge. He was found there by teenagers suffering from hypothermia and exhaustion. After recovering in Letterman Army Hospital, he was immediately returned to Alcatraz. Scott is the only documented case of an Alcatraz inmate reaching the shore by swimming. Today, a multitude of athletes swam 
the same Alcatraz to Fort Point route as part of the annual uh, part two of the annual triathlon events. But right there, it also proves that the Anglin brothers could have done that. Yeah, if athletes can do it, that means like people can. And do it. And they had a raft; they could have taken the raft that distance instead. Yeah, yeah. The only problem is, who knows if the raft like was good enough though at the same time. And it might not be, but you know, that could have been the case. Uh, because Alcatraz costs more to operate than other prisons, nearly $10 per prisoner per day, as opposed to $3 per prisoner per day in, in Atlanta, and because of 50 years of saltwater saturation had severely eroded the buildings, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy ordered the facility to be closed on March 21st, 1963. The FBI closed its file on December 31st, 1979, after a 17-year investigation. Their official finding was that the prisoners most likely drowned in the cold waters of the bay while attempting to reach Angel Island. They cited the remnants found of the raft, as well as personal effects of the men, uh, as evidence that the raft broke up and sank at some point, and the three convicts succumbed to hypothermia while the, with their bodies swept out to sea by the rapid currents of the San Francisco Bay. The FBI did hand their evidence over to the U.S. Marshal Service, Service, whose investigation remains open. As Deputy U.S. Marshal Michael Dyke told NPR, there's an active warrant, and the Marshal Service does not give up on looking for people. In 2009, Dyke said that he was still receiving leads on a regular basis. The warrant will expire in 2030, when all of the missing men should be at least 100 years old. So think about that. They are still considered alive until uh, 2030. Isn't that just kind of crazy? That is crazy. Like, these guys went so long and they might actually always just be like that. I can't even believe that. You can't believe that that happened to them? I, I, yeah, I can't believe that they died. I just don't believe it. Because where it doesn't say anything about where they found the raft, right? I just said they found it in the ocean. Yeah, they could have just tossed it back out. Right, and I think that's the most likely option. And there are actually, uh, the next site, uh, section we have after this is reported sightings. Yeah. So there are reported sightings of these people. Um, and it's, it's really interesting to hear about this stuff, because genuinely, we still don't know. And it gets, it gets a little spooky, because it feels like, like, I actually have goosebumps right now. Okay. Uh, thinking about the stuff that we're about to talk about because it gets a little little sketchy. Okay. So reported like, sightings. Huh? No, go ahead. No, like what? Go ahead. In in January 1965, the FBI investigated a rumor that Clarence England was living in Brazil. Agents were dispatched to South America but found no direct evidence that he was there. A man called the Bureau in 1967 claiming to have been in Mor uh, Ben Morris's classmate and to have known him for 30 years. He said he had bumped into him in Maryland and described him as having a small beard and mustache, but refused to give further details. Family members of the England brothers occasionally received postcards and messages over the years. Most were unsigned. One was signed Jerry and another Jerry and Joe. The family produced a Christmas card purportedly received in the family mailbox in 1962 saying, To Mother, from John, Merry Christmas. 
Another of the England 11 siblings, Robert, also said that sometimes the phone would ring and all that could be heard was breathing on the other end. Robert said, I suppose all of that could have been pranks, but maybe it was my brother's. The mother of the England brothers received flowers anonymously every Mother's Day until her death in 1973, and two very tall, unusual women in heavy makeup were reported to have attended her funeral. Federal officials say that in the mid to late 1960s and into the 1970s, there were six or seven sightings of the reported England brothers, all in Florida or Georgia. Robert said that in 1989, the father of the England brothers died. Two strangers in beards showed up at the funeral home. According to Robert, they stood at the in front of the casket looking at the body for a few minutes they wept then they walked out in 1989 a woman who identified herself as kathy called on solve mysteries tip line to report that a photo of clarence england matched the description of a man who lived on the farm in near mariana florida another woman also recognized a photo of clarence england and said that he lived near mariana she corrected correctly identified his eye color height and other physical features another witness claimed the sketch of frank morris bore a striking resemblance to a man that she had seen in the same area. So the, the part that like gives me chills to think about. Yeah. Is that these guys showed up to the, the possibly showed up to the funerals of their parents in disguise and nobody knew it was them. Yeah. I mean, who would know it was them? Well, like the, the one that really shakes me is the one where they just showed up with beards to their dad's funeral, but nobody recognized them. Yeah. And like, they just straight up wept in front of the casket. No one went, Oh, how did you know him? And then they just left. And no one said or did anything. Right. Like if I saw two strangers at my dad's funeral, I'd walk over and be like, Oh, Hey, how did you know him? And, like, maybe they were like, oh, we're doing, we're not going to ask because, like, if it is our brothers, we don't want to blow their cover. Yeah. But still, I would go ask. Like, that's, that's some important shit. Like, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't buy that, that you just looked at them and went, these guys are just here to pay respects to our dad. I would have been like, who the fuck are you and why are you crying over my dad? Yeah, I mean, of course you would, yeah. Like, to be fair, my dad is also a fairly well-known guy, especially, like, locally. Yeah. And, like, if people were at his funeral, I would fucking want to know why they're there. But, I mean, to be fair, the same thing happened at my grandfather's funeral. Or random guys you didn't know showed up? Yeah. because they probably knew him. Oh no, a bunch of people like knew my grandfather, but I didn't know who any of them were. The thing was, is my grandfather was one of those people that like everybody knew. Yeah. And I learned that by just seeing the mass of people that I didn't know showing up at his funeral. Yeah. Or his calling hours. Like it was it was a lot. So Next, we have claims and developments. I think that's uh, the last. Yeah, that's the last section. And this is a long one. So expect some pauses because God damn it. <laughs> I'm looking at this and it is. It's a lot. Josh, are you looking at the article? No, I'm not looking at the article. 
I just want you to scroll through and see the fucking size of this shit. We can just, I, like, I could just skim. I'm going to share screens with you so you can see it. Okay, let me go to Discord. Then. So here's the top, right? Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. I, I think that's the last section we care about. Oh, it is. That's why we're doing it. Yeah. Go ahead. A day after the escape, a man claiming to be John England called a lawyer, Eugenia McGowan, in San Francisco to arrange a meeting with the U.S. Marshal's office. When McGowan refused, the caller terminated the phone call. Robert Chechi? A San Francisco police officer said that at 1 a.m. the morning of June 12th, he saw an, quote, illegal boat in the bay near Alcatraz. A few minutes later, the boat left, heading under the Golden Gate Bridge. This led to the speculation that the prisoners might have enlisted outside Confederates to pick them up. The FBI dismissed Chechi's account out of hand. In 1993, a former Alcatraz inmate named Thomas Kent told the television program America's Most Wanted that he had, planned, he had helped plan the escape and claimed to have provided significant new leads to investigators. He said that Clarence Engel's girlfriend had agreed to meet the men on shore and drive them to Mexico. He declined to participate in the actual escape, he said because he could not swim. Officials were skeptical of Kent's account because he had been paid $2,000 for the interview. Yeah, what, a, what a cheeky bastard. Right. <laughs> uh, a man named John Leroy Kelly dictated an extended deathbed confession to his nurse in 1993. Kelly claimed that he and a partner had picked up Morris and the England brothers in a boat and transported them to the Seattle-Washington area. Later, under the guise of transporting them to Canada, Kelly and his partner murdered the escapees to get the $40,000 their families had collected for them. At a location in Seattle where Kelly claimed the three escapees were buried, no human remains were found. Right. Sure, I don't I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe I, there's one thing I've learned from like from like starting to read true crime stuff, don't believe deathbed confessionals ever anymore. Yeah, I don't trust death confessions for anything. Yeah. <laughs> I like this next one. Uh, a 2003 Mythbusters episode on Discovery Channel tested the feasibility of an escape from the island aboard a raft constructed with the same materials and tools available to the inmates and concluded it was, quote unquote, possible. Oh shit, what the fuck was that? Oh, I'm gonna make it yeah, I've seen that episode of Mythbusters before. It's a cool episode. They actually yeah. legitimately did the, uh, they did the boat ride. And, yeah, and it was possible. Yeah, and, and Adam said it was one of the worst things he's ever done on the show and that it sucked super hard. I believe it too. Keep going. Um, a 2011 documentary on National Geographic Channel entitled Vanished from Alcatraz reported the contrary to the FBI report. A raft was discovered on Angel Island on June 12, 1962, the day after the escape, with footprints leading away from it. Furthermore, a 1955 blue Chev Chevrolet California license plate KPB076 was reportedly stolen in Marin County on the same day. A claim corroborated by contemporary stories 
in the Humboldt Times and the San Francisco Examiner. The following day, a motorist in Stockton, California, 80 miles east of San Francisco, reported to the highway patrol that he had been forced off the road by three men in a blue Chevrolet. The same year, an 89-year-old man named Bud Morris, who claimed to be the cousin of Frank Morris, said uh, that on eight or nine occasions prior to the escape, he delivered envelopes of money to Alcatraz guards, presumably as bribes. He further claimed that he to have met his cousin face-to-face in San Diego Park shortly after the escape. His daughter, who was eight or nine years old at the time, said she was present at the meeting with Dad's friend Frank, but had no idea about the escape. I don't believe that for a second. Me neither. It's another one of those things where it's like, how do you believe that? It just doesn't Yeah. So next we got uh, a study, a 2014 study of the ocean currents by scientists at Delft University concluded that the that if the prisoners out, left Alcatraz at 11.30 p.m. on June 11th, they could have made it to Horseshoe Bay, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, and that debris would have floated in the direction of Angel Island, consistent where the paddle and belongings were found, if they left before or after that time. They said tides and currents were such that their chances of survival were slim. And that right there goes right back to what we've been saying, Josh, about the the current being shit. Yeah. And um, I'm gonna use this link material in a chance. So let me do that. Uh, 2015 histor- History Channel documentary entitled Alcatraz: Search for the Truth presented further circumstantial evidence gathered over the years by the England family. Kenneth and David Widener displayed Christmas cards containing the England's handwriting and allegedly received by family members for three years after the escape. While the handwriting was verified as the England's, none of the envelopes contained a postmarked stamp, so experts could not be could not determine when they were delivered, when they had been delivered. The family cited a story from fa- family friend Fred Brizzy, who grew up with the brothers and claimed to have been, recognized them in Rio de Janeiro in 1975. They produced photographs purportedly taken by Brizzy, including one of the two men, according to Brizzy, were John and Clarence Anklin, standing next to a large termite mound. Other photos showed a Brazilian farm that Brizzy claimed was owned by the two men. Forensic experts working from, for the family confirmed that the photos were taken in 1975 and asserted that the two men were more like than likely the Anglins, although the aging condition of the photo and the fact that both men were wearing sunglasses hindered efforts to make definitive determination. Brizzy also presented an alternate escape theory. Rather than use the raft across the bay, he said, they paddled around the island to the boat dock, where they attached an electric cord, which was reportedly missing from the dock the night of the escape, to the rudder of a prison ferry and departed the island shortly after midnight and were towed behind it to the mainland. So I don't I don't know if I believe that last part, because I feel like they would they would notice. Well, maybe not, especially on a really shitty weather night. Like, it didn't say, it didn't say the weather was shitty, it just said, like, the currents were kind of, like, hit or miss that night. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Art Roderick, a retired deputy U.S. Marshal, who had once headed the investigation and later worked with the Anglo family, called Brizzy's photographs of the two men absolutely the best actionable lead we've had, but added, it could still be a ni- still all be a nice story, which isn't true. Or the photograph could be a misdirection, aimed at steering the investigation away from the England's actual whereabouts. 
Michael Dyke, the last deputy U.S. marshal on the case, said Brizzy was a drug smuggler and con man and was suspicious of his account. Brizzy's widow said that she had never heard him mention seeing the Englands in Re- Engel brothers in Rio and that he was a con man who was prone to making up stories. An expert working for the U.S. Marshal Service did not believe the photograph was legitimate. Dyke said measurements of the physical characteristics of the England brothers indicate that they are not the men in Brazil, but acknowledged that the difficulty in making definitive determination and ruling out as a valid lead. In January 2020, an Irish creative agency and AI specialist at Identive used facial recognition techniques to conclude that the men in the photo were John and Clarence England. Who knows, though? The world may never know. Uh, Robert England reportedly told the family members before his death in 2010 that he'd been in contact with Clarence and John from 1963 until approximately 1987. Surviving family members who said they had heard nothing since Robert lost contact with the brothers in 1987 announced plans to travel to Brazil to conduct a personal search. But Roderick cautioned that they could, could be arrested by Brazilian authorities because Alcatraz's escape remains open an open Interpol case. In 2018, the FBI confirmed the existence of a letter allegedly written by John Anglin and received by the San Francisco Police Department in 2013. The writer asserted that Frank Morris died in 2008 and was buried in Alexandria under a different name, and Clarence Anglin died in 2011. His purpose of writing the letter, he said, was to negotiate his surrender in exchange for medical treatment for his cancer. The letter's authenticity was deemed inconclusive. In a 2019 episode of the series Mission Declassified, investigative journalist Christoph Putzel corroborated much of the information released by the FBI and other sources, including the raft found on Angel Island. He quoted various reports meaning mentioning a blue Chevrolet of the same description as the one stolen after the escape, spotted in Oklahoma, Indiana, Ohio, and South Carolina, where three months after the escape, the three men matching the escapee's description attempted to acquire a residence in the woods. Yeah. I think they made it. I honestly think they may have, too. That seems too convenient for them to have died, almost, if you know what I mean. Yeah, because, like, the more we hear about it, the more, like, on one hand, we're almost like, yeah, I kind of, like, think they died. And you almost want them to have just, like, to have the closure. Yeah. But I think they made it. (laughs) There's enough evidence there of... uh, circumstantial mind where I definitely believe that they made it. Right. Like, I'm in that same vote where I, like, I think I think they made yeah. it. it. It's it's close, but I think they made it. Good for good for them, though, if they did make it and they lived a fulfilling life to whatever point that they could. Yeah, like, they, they did what they could and they did their best. Escaping the law for over 50 years. And to this day, still having no clue where the fuck they are. <laughs> I mean, they're 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 dead by now. They're dead. They're gone. Oh yeah, you're right. No, actually, uh, realistically, one of them could still be alive. I mean, people do live past a hundred, I guess. So the year that they all would have had to have hit a hundred was twenty thirty, I believe. Is what it said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess like I guess people live to ninety pretty pretty frequently these days but who knows so in theory they could still be yeah the warrant will expire in 2030 when all of the missing men would be at least 100 years old because the youngest of them was born in 1931 
Yeah. But according to the letter, the one who would have been the youngest also died. Again, that's according to a letter that was not confirmed to have been true or not. Yeah, that letter was proved to be inconclusive. They couldn't they couldn't conclusively say whether that was real or not. Correct. I'm just telling what I see. But yeah, I think that's definitely enough for this episode. Um, yeah, I think that was a, an interesting one for us to have covered. Yeah. If um if you want to see more of this, go to um when you want to support us financially, you can go to patreon.com slash big five podcast. There's some uh there's some tiers where you can uh tell us where you can uh support us financially and also a fifteen dollar bonus tier if you want to support uh the podcast and the Figly Plays Co Fi at the same time for some awesome perk for some awesome perks and other stuff. So, you know, if you feel like tossing a couple bucks our way every month so you can continue to do what we do, obviously the podcast will still always remain free, but you get some cool bonuses that way. So if you ever feel like that, just, you know, pop over to the Patreon and uh, and, uh, anything you guys can give would be great. Yeah, if you support us, uh, you can even probably suggest a a top five for us to do someday or top ten. Definitely. One of the things I do intend to do once we have podcast once we have a uh, patreon supporters is to do more polls on um uh do polls on um top podcast topics as well but anyway we'll see you guys next time and uh have a good night have Bye. a good night everybody